cuts are blood money. People will die. Black Lives Matter is killing Americans. Republicans want you to die quickly if you get sick. We could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters. This president has radicalized so many more people than ISIS ever did. Things are going swimmingly in Afghanistan. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Welcome back. If you are back for a third episode, then you know the drill. I'm Ken. I've got Andrew here with me, and this is Reel It In. And we're going to take a topic, strip it down to the studs, get rid of the fluff and the skewed narratives, and talk through the topic how we think it should be talked about using data and critical thinking. And the topic we're discussing here is the filibuster, which I feel like this is a big one because so few people understand exactly what the filibuster is, and how it came to be. But I feel like we all should know about it because it really affects policy and how our government works. Yeah, and I feel like it's getting talked about a lot right now. There's all this kind of talk about abolishing the filibuster. People have opinions. It's it's great. It's terrible. Talking about the nuclear option. Nuclear we're gonna, option. <laughs> we're going to talk about all of that. And first things first, what is a filibuster? I feel like it needs to be said in a British accent. Filibuster doesn't do it justice. The filibuster. The filibuster. That was way better. <laughs> I'll stick to my American accent. So, the filibuster is used to delay debate or block legislation from being voted on. It sounds like a veto. It's not. A veto is used to overrule something after a vote is held. Filibustering stops potential legislation from ever being voted on. And the first person that we knew that kind of used the concept of a filibuster, it wasn't obviously called a filibuster, but the same idea was the Roman senator Cato the Younger, where in debates over legislation that he opposed, he would obstruct the measure by speaking for a very long time until nightfall. And since the Roman Senate had a rule that required all business to be concluded by dusk, if he had this really long-winded speech, he could basically stop the vote from happening for at least a day to kind of gain his his ground. So it's been around for a long time, and I bet maybe that's the first time we see it in history, but it sounds like something that people have probably always done. Yeah. Um, Imagine being called Cato the Younger, though. Like, he is forever known in history as Cato the Younger. And you're upset about it because he's, like, inferior to whoever the older is? Right. Who's Cato the Older? Right. Someone who could probably push policy forward and then the younger would say la 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 i'm gonna speak all night and obstruct spoken like a true older brother <laughs> you're right and it's very annoying when the younger ones pull something like that you know maybe that's why i love the filibuster so much being the third the youngest child because i don't know i need to do it and maybe that's why you don't like it that's interesting man because ladies and gentlemen we have our first topic that we kind of disagree on yeah yeah, and good thing this isn't on video because it might end in a fist fight. <laughs> nice. Britain and Canada have the equivalent of a filibuster. It's a similar mechanism. In Britain, it's referred to as, seems obvious, it's called talking it to death. And in Canada, they call it a drone attack. It's kind of like a dad joke because the person <laughs> will drone on and on. Right, but I feel like Canada is, other than Switzerland maybe, is the last country that you would expect to execute a drone attack on anybody. Yes, yes. So, yeah, it's misleading because I was thinking right. drone as well as like a weapon or something, but right. no, just <laughs> drone on and on. And they have something similar in French Parliament and the Hong Kong Legislative Council. The mechanism is a little bit different where instead of talking on forever, they submit official amendments for consideration. So they'll take instead of there usually being like, I don't know, a handful of like 10 or 15 amendments, they'll submit 
100,000 amendments uh, in the case of France <laughs> to delay the voting. And the way that that works is they have to vote on every single amendment individually. So if you submit 100,000 amendments, you're not going to get through all of them through that voting mechanism. And I guess in 2022, just this year, Hong Kong removed that rule so that filibustering was no longer possible. Wise. Can you imagine 100,000 amendments to distract and stall? Like all of that effort could have been put into figuring out the solution to whatever the real problem was. That is just nuts. That, that makes our filibuster, I feel like, look tame in yeah. response to it. Like ours, you just kind of have to get the votes, but there it's like just going to go on and on forever. But the point that we kind of wanted to make with this, calling out the way that things are done in other countries, is that a lot of times people will try and make the argument, I've seen this in a few different places, that America is like the only place where filibustering happens. And that's clearly not the case based on what we've been talking about. It happens everywhere else. Right. Yeah. And that seems to be a common thread in the few podcasts we've made so far where the media is presenting whatever the issue is as like a uniquely American event, per se, not to quote ourselves Ooh, from the past. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun, and we're not exclusively doing things here. You're right. We're not that special. Also, in Australia, there's a rule which limits the length of debate, preventing a filibuster from happening. Yeah, that's like the opposite direction. So that's an example of they basically said no filibustering. We don't want it. Right. It's out of there. In the term filibuster in itself, it is not, in fact, British. So it's not filibuster. It's <laughs> from a Dutch word meaning pirate. And that became popular in the U.S., using it in the context in the late 1800s. The first instance of a legislator personally being called a filibuster-er. I think it's regular filibuster. Be, being a filibuster, they are the filibuster? Yeah, you are oh, okay. a filibuster. Yeah, because it means pirate. Okay, I got it. Right. I didn't, I didn't understand that until this moment. So there's two kinds of filibusters. The first one is a legislative filibuster, and that's used to prevent a vote on issues on the legislative calendar. And then the other one is an executive filibuster or a judicial filibuster. It's used to forestall a chamber vote on nominations to fill vacancies in those respective branches. So, like, so one is you're stopping legislation from happening. The other one is you're stopping an appointment. Like you don't want this person to get the job, so you filibuster that. Right. A popular term quote, holding the floor, unquote, is or used to be exactly what it sounds like. It's a senator that is taking control of the conversation about a particular topic. A senator would physically stand on the floor and talk in perpetuity. It doesn't even have to be about the bill. <laughs> it can be about anything. Sports, weather, recipes. If it was Ken and I up there, we'd be talking about Arborvitaes and we could go <laughs> on and on. I could filibuster for days on Arborvitaes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, you can you can do one of two things, too, with that. Um, you can provide notice privately to your own party and not let everybody know that you're starting it. That's called a secret or anonymous hold. Um, or they can say it out in the open on the floor. And that's when that is known as a senatorial hold. Um, so you can sneak it in there and like let it be like a slow wimp. develop, you know, add some drama, some sizzle to it. Um, or you can just be plain Jane and just be like, yo, I'm filibustering. Or, no, not plain Jane. You're basically, uh, that's commendable. You're up there and you're putting yourself on the line. You're saying, I like to live dangerously. Oh, you like to Don't live Don't follow the, the rules. Oh, secrets. <laughs> A ninja filibuster. Filibustering was made possible in 1806 when the Senate, at the advice of Vice President Aaron Burr, removed a provision from a Senate rule allowing a simple majority to vote on the underlying question being debated. This decision was not strategic or political in any way. It actually was just a simple housekeeping matter. The Senate had way too many rules, and they were just kind of doing a cleanup. And the Senate was using the motion so infrequently, and it had other motions available that did a similar thing. 
So they just wiped it. And I feel like this is an important one because sometimes you'll have people argue like, this is the way the founding fathers intended it. This is the way that they designed it to, to occur. So like we should keep it this way. And that's not the case. This was kind of an unintentional uh, loophole that was opened up based off of the way that they changed the rules. It was just kind of a housekeeping matter. And then this popped up. But by taking away that rule, they made it possible in the Senate so that there was no longer that rule to just cut debate by a simple majority of a vote. You know, the tradition of unlimited debate allowed for the use of the filibuster, and now you can't stop it. It's just going to keep going, so you can delay that that bill, that resolution, the appointment, whatever debatable question it is, you can forestall that indefinitely. The first filibuster was in 1837, when a minority block of Whig senators prolonged debate to prevent Andrew Jackson's allies from expunging a resolution of censor against him. And Congress can only filibuster in the Senate. In the House of Representatives, the filibuster used to be used until 1842, and then they said, kind of, that's enough of that, and they passed a permanent rule limiting the duration of debate, Um, and so basically the mechanic is a simple majority can end debate just like a regular vote can. So if they have the votes, they can stop it. There's no filibuster in the House. Way to go, House of Representatives, because that seems like the right move. But you know, you're, you're making a lot of comments that are that are anti-filibuster. Does it sound like I have an opinion about it? It does sound like you have yeah, an opinion. I'm sorry, it's bleeding through. I should hold off a bit. All right, I'm kind of excited about this because so far I feel like we've been kind of on the same side about things and I think we might be on opposing sides on this one. You are a pirate. Okay, <laughs> I I own it. I own it. In the, in the U.S. Constitution, in Article One, it says that each house may determine the rules of its own proceeding. In April 1789, the House and the Senate adopted joint rules to guide both houses. The rules allowed for a simple majority to call for a vote without further debate on the previous question, but no rule prevented a member of either the House or Senate to speak without end. So to do so, however, was considered unseemly. It is. Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> you say that it's unseemly, but I it, it's okay. so unseemly. All right, it's all right. two children um, <laughs> fighting about something, and one is just talking louder, saying "la la la," I can't hear you, until the other person gets so frustrated they walk away. Okay, on a right. bigger level. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, in his manual of parliamentary practice for the Senate, which he composed during his time as Vice President required that, quote, no one is to speak impertinently or beside the question superfluously or tediously. So it was just like an ethical issue that you shouldn't just stand up and hold the floor. But, but there wasn't a rule. But there wasn't a rule. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the key here is that if somebody says that getting rid of the filibuster is unconstitutional, um, or if any really any constitutional argument is trying to be made here, there's nothing in the Constitution that describes precisely how the House or the Senate has to operate. It says, in and of itself, they can make their own rules. So there are aspects of the House and the Senate that are determined in the Constitution, but for how they do their day-to-day operations, there's nothing. It lets them go to their own devices. Right. Um, So then the Senate kind of took the concept and formally adopted the unlimited debate rule in 1856, But like we were saying before, no mechanism existed to stop the debate under the rules. Eventually, it became so cumbersome that the senators tried to reform it in 1873, in 1883, and then again in 1890. All of them were unsuccessful because opponents would filibuster the motion to ban the filibuster. So you have to overcome the filibuster (laughs) to ban the filibuster, which to me, I find that hilarious. 
hilarious if it wasn't our lives at stake and our country's <laughs> decision making at stake. In 1892, the U.S. Supreme Court held in United States v. I'm Bolin. <laughs> That's how I read it. I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. All right, it's probably good. like Balin or like some, no. I want to be States Balin. v. Balin. It is definitely B A L L I N. So we we Balin. <laughs> So, in 1892, as a refresher, the U.S. Supreme Court held in United States v. Ballin that the Senate was free to amend its procedural rules by a simple majority. However, a rule change could be prevented by a filibuster in the Senate. Right. So, the Supreme Court said, filibustering, thumbs up. We, we approve uh, in 1892. Somebody should probably let us know how to actually pronounce these things. I also apologize for any mispronunci- mispronunciations of names out there. I definitely have hacked people's names real bad. Um, I'd like to think our listeners give us a long leash and understand that we're... And for for my own credit, I read most of this stuff as opposed to like seeing it on video, like most of the stuff that I consume. So like, I I don't know the proper pronunciation. I should throw these things into Google Translate more often. I'll help you along the way because I don't read, Ken. I only listen. I appreciate that. (laughs) And so then another tactic that's used by the minority party to prevent a vote from happening, this isn't a filibuster. It's called the disappearing quorum. Um where basically if they have enough representatives that didn't log a yes or no vote, or if they didn't show up, they couldn't achieve a quorum, which basically means that the vote doesn't count because they don't have enough people in order to, to for the vote to count. So the Democrats did this recently, uh, if you remember, in the Texas State Congress, where they all fled to Washington, D.C. to prevent a vote on the voter ID legis- legislation. Do you remember that? I remember that. That was actually being on the news for a bit. Two it years was. ago, maybe? Yeah. And they, so that like they were like staying in hotels and like requesting care packages of Dr. Pepper and Smints or something like that. It was like know. a very cool public statement. Like, it, like a lot of the stuff that the I don't know, Congress people do behind the scenes are not interesting to us, but that move was very impressive, I guess. It was a very Twitter-friendly and Instagram-friendly motion for them to do. So anyways, the tactic was used at the federal level until Speaker Thomas Brackett Reed eliminated it in 1890 at the start of the 51st Congress. Um, So he did something that had never been done before. He took attendance. Wild. So something as little as taking attendance started this whole firestorm. And the reason why that's critical is people before could show up, but as long as they didn't speak when a vote was being called out, it wouldn't be counted as them being there. So like if they they could be sitting in their seat and as long as they stayed silent, the vote couldn't go through. With how pedantic all the rules are, I feel like him taking attendance could have been fought because of like it was that a rule like was he allowed to take attendance and they had to comply you know I... you lost me at pedantic because it's such a fantastic word sorry i should use smaller <laughs> words <laughs> no i love it that was great so in but... this situation though it was great <laughs> the democrats start to figure out what's going on so they're all sitting there and then this guy thomas bracket reed starts taking attendance and they realize that it's not gonna the disappearing quorum isn't gonna work anymore so they tried to deny the quorum by running out of the house floor by literally fleeing the house floor a stampede of suits (laughs) (laughs) and one person actually uh so they were closing the doors and locking them from the outside one lawmaker kicked down a door and escaped amazing it was uh constantine b kilgore um of course he was from texas an incredible name as well though (laughs) and uh so uh, all the other democrat colleagues were locked in but this dude kicked down a door this dude must have been huge 
I, I'm picturing full on like uh, Chuck Norris, you know, like Walker, Texas Ranger, like kicking the door down Absolutely. or like an episode of cops like the NYPD has got a battering ram. Like, although I'm thinking with Chuck Norris, though, like the, the way the, the quality was back then was like him standing there, not putting much effort into it. And the door blasts off 20 <laughs> feet away or something. <laughs> well, I'm surprised you're even familiar with Chuck Norris, given, you know. Your uh, your dirty Harry lapse of familiarity. I know some things, Ken. I think that set me up at the beginning as uh, not knowing much. I don't know. The, uh, I don't know about your uh, your ability to. We're not all Hollywood um, <laughs> aficionados, Ken. I'm far from that. But actually, speaking of Hollywood, though, since we're talking about kicking down doors, did did you ever hear the Dane Cook skit about kicking down doors? A while ago, it was it was great. It was like he was talking about how he wanted to do a like a B and E, but he didn't actually want to steal anything. He just wanted to do it to kick down a door. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I think it. everybody can appreciate like I, I would love to kick down a door I think everyone wants to do that once yeah so understandable well this guy did it and um and also like the doors to this chamber it's the house chambers are like the old school huge heavy oak doors like it's not like a you know a weak door so this dude had some power in it I don't know if there's any follow-up on the history but like did he break his leg did they did they not get the quorum? Like, you, I want to know if that actually worked um, out. For no, him. they they got the quorum because they locked everybody else in. So they lost one guy, Only but then everybody else got locked in. Unfortunate. So, yeah. But so speaking of people kicking down doors, I'm going to cheat here and I'm going to give my answer first because I feel like this is a difficult one. If you had to choose a sitting congressperson from the House or the Senate from each side of the aisle, a Democrat and a Republican that could physically kick down, you like you believe this person could kick down a door. Who would you pick? I am going with, for Democrats, I'm going to choose Cory Booker. He was actually the... Um, He's a big dude. He spoke at the my commencement speech when I graduated from college. Um, he's, he seems like he's pretty fit. Like I think he could he could kick down a door. I think he would just... I, I've seen him speak a few times, and he does these really big, intense eyes. I feel like he would just have <laughs> this eye power that would knock the door down. <laughs> I like it. Um, and so then for my Republican one, uh, this I almost feel it feels like cheating, but I'm going to go with Dan Crenshaw. It is cheating. I did my homework on this. Of all the stuff we looked up, I spent most of my time thinking about this question. And um, I'm not going to say the name, but let me just tell you some facts. This person joined the U.S. Army Reserve in 1992, chose to fly helicopters because it was one of the only, okay, here I go, one of the only combat jobs a woman at the time was allowed to do. All right, we're whittling down our pool. Yeah, yeah. In 2004, she deployed to Iraq, and it was not long before her Army Black Hawk helicopter was hit by a grenade. She lost both of her legs and partial use of an arm in the attack. This Ooh. woman, Tammy Duckworth, I don't know anything about her. I don't care about her policy, but she is essentially bionic. And depending on the quality and the money that she was able to put on her limbs, she can probably break down anything she wants. So <laughs> I feel like we're more all, than we're, human. We're both cheating on these answers. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely cheating. Well, she's the only person that's more than human in this situation. She, so she absolutely wins. <laughs> so, uh, what about Republican? Because that's your Democrat choice. What about none, Republican? None. Just Tammy. Nobody. No, nobody. Uh, okay. Dan Crenshaw is a good move. I, yeah. I didn't look much further than that. I don't Do know. You, if I had to choose, maybe uh, I feel like Rand Paul is a pretty fit dude. He's little. No, he talks he? a big. He's a little guy. I think. He's oh, a little guy. but doesn't he like run all the? T I feel like he's pretty athletic. Um. Does he run? That doesn't mean you're athletic. That okay, mean, sure, sure. Like you said, big oak doors. I don't know. Okay, no, that's okay. Fair enough. Fair Maybe enough. his dad. Maybe his Shoot dad. Ron. Ron. In his heyday. <laughs> in his heyday, yeah. Yeah. All right. So anyway. Let <laughs> me cleared that up. <laughs> um, so after order was restored to the chamber, so they, uh, you know, lock everybody in and uh, calm everybody down. Um, 
There were furious denunciations uh, that followed that made today's filibuster debate look tame. Um, one member called Reed's roll call an act as violent as we have ever witnessed in any parliament. <laughs> what a baby. Well, and the, the thing that I find hilarious about that is, have you seen videos of other parliaments in different countries? Um, yes. There's straight up brawls. People punching each other out. People getting knocked unconscious. So this dude's like, this is so violent. <laughs> and it's a rule change. <laughs> it was attendance being taken. <laughs> right. So I, we, well, we're posthumously reeling that statement in. If um, I could go off to the side for a moment, um, there is a whole thing on YouTube where you can look up other parliaments, brawls and fistfights and things. Obviously, that's recorded. But put to the soundtrack of like a heavy metal song and <laughs> just moshing it is i gotta send something to you oh man oh that's great no definitely send that so after four days of speech making of the democrats kind of taking their stand and saying this is so preposterous um they had no choice they had to move on and reed ultimately won in 1891 the democrats then regained control of the house and reversed reed's rule changes but reed who is now the minority leader Use the reinstated filibuster so effectively that his opponents had no choice but to reabolish it two years later. This guy's good. <laughs> I, I love that that he just like you know wielded it to it wielded it to his own benefit advantage absolutely. Yeah. Before 1917, uh, the Senate rules didn't provide a way to end debate or force a vote on a measure. You could essentially filibuster forever. But that year, the Senate adopted a rule that allowed a two-thirds majority of those present to end a filibuster, a procedure known as cloture. Yes. And in 1949, the Senate modified the rule to require a two-thirds vote of the entire chamber, as opposed to those present, to invoke cloture. Ten years after that, in 1959, the Senate returned to its previous rule of requiring two-thirds vote of those present to vote. I'm guessing maybe it was too difficult to get the two-thirds of everybody, so they went back. So then in 1975, the Senate reduced the number of votes required for cloture from two-thirds down to three-fifths. So now it's 60 instead of the 67, with exception of Senate rules, which still required the two-thirds. And it seems like they're making it more reasonable because the filibustering is probably a real problem for the other side at the time so yeah just taking steps to make sure that they can actually get anything done. Get past it yeah. yeah though the earliest use of filibusters required a senator to actually hold and keep the floor like we had said through an extended period of speaking the aim of filibusters could later be attained without the need to hold the floor and in my opinion this is where it goes awry the senate develops a two-track system in the 1970s meaning that any one senator can filibuster one action while the senate continues to proceed on other business so it's like pausing that one topic, and then we can move on about other things. Um, sometimes this is referred to as a silent or stealth filibuster. Love that. This method was designed to keep Senate business moving, but it has also increased the number of filibusters used. Senators can simply threaten to use a filibuster, and the effect is the same, but without any of the political costs in being seen as delaying action on Senate business by speaking for an extended period on the floor of the Senate. Which... The difference between a filibuster threat and a filibuster, I don't. It seems kind of hazy. Um, well, it becomes hazy at this point because before you could threaten a filibuster, but that didn't really mean anything. Now the threat of a filibuster becomes your filibuster. Sure, you don't have to do anything on top of threatening it. Once you threaten it, it's in effect. Yeah. So this it's it kind of has its positives and its negatives, right? So the whole purpose of bringing this about is the filibusters as they traditionally existed, people actually standing on the floor and talking indefinitely was holding up Senate business. So you couldn't 
get anything done. You couldn't pass anything because they were taking all this time to filibuster. They everything to a halt. Right. So by developing this two-track system, it allows things to still be voted on and be moved through while this filibuster is technically happening quote unquote like in the background so that's the positive of it is like okay let's move things along let's keep things moving but the negative aspect of it was that the uh, barrier of entry to do it is now so much lower and like there's i was saying earlier that if it's a silent filibuster you're not putting your um dignity on the line you're not there's no there's way less consequence and so yeah and the result was they have exponentially increased yeah and this this really came about in 1964 it was during a debate over what eventually became the civil rights act southern democrats filibustered for 75 hours in an attempt to prevent the bill's passage and then to fix the issue of future filibusters the senate majority leader at the time instituted two modifications you could force cloture on filibuster threats and then they implemented this two-track system which some people could argue that the two-track system is good or bad based on its different merits. So since the member doesn't have to stand up on the floor anymore uh, and physically prevent the legislation or the or the appointment, they could they could do it by email now, which is nuts to me. Uh, <laughs> that's like that's like breaking up with somebody via text. Oh, like, right. I'm like, going to filibuster via email. So easily. <laughs> um, so they didn't have to speak in public to do this anymore. They just need to issue a warning on paper or via email and that would be enough that's my problem like maybe you don't have to stand up and speak till you can't but there should be still some kind of still make it difficult in some way where someone would have to critically think and decide you know i really want to do this this is really that worth it for me to stick my neck out and do this because right now it's just pressing send on an email and the the numbers kind of prove that out so in the last 10 sessions of congress after this was implemented more than twice of the number of filibusters have happened than in the past 38 sessions combined so 38 sessions versus 10 sessions, and there are twice as many filibusters in those 10 sessions that are the most recent. So that's how the filibuster works. I think we have a good grasp on it. Um, but the other piece to this puzzle, uh, and people have heard this term probably, it's called the nuclear option, also known as the constitutional option. It's a procedure that allows the majority party to change a Senate rule or precedent with a simple majority vote. So normally, the Senate would need a two-thirds vote to invoke cloture on a resolution to change its standing rules but now a simple majority could pull this off yeah and uh so in 1917 uh senator thomas walsh proposed using the constitutional option for the first time basically changing the senate rules in this way was nicknamed the nuclear option because it's like the final option it's the last thing and in this context basically that it stuck because of like once you do this you can't go back like once you press the big red button it's done and then eventually when the majority party becomes the minority party you're getting stuck with being stripped of all that leverage that you used to have before because of the rule change that you implemented yourself and the other party's absolutely going to use it on you right it's like nuclear winter like you're suffering the effects of sending the nuclear bomb right so it better be really damn important to pull something (laughs) off right so members of the senate have threatened to use the nuclear option on multiple occasions and that's what we hear about in the news all the time it's these threats getting lobbed back and forth but it actually was not used until november of 2013 when senate majority leader harry reid used it to allow judicial nominations to be approved with 51 votes instead previously it used to be 60 except uh with nominees to the u.s supreme court 
Yeah, so we had talked about the legislative filibuster. This is not the legislative filibuster. This is the one that has to do with judicial appointments. Um, but this one is like they they carve out these tiny little slices of like okay we're not going to do it for legislative and we're and we're going to do it for appointments but not Supreme Court uh, court appointments we're just going to do it for this you know this other one. it feels very ad hoc to fit what's currently happening right they they wanted to get something done so they changed yep. the rules just for that like one thing that they wanted to do yep not sustainable <laughs> the rule change passed by a vote of fifty two to forty eight. With Carl Levin, Joe Manchin, and Mark Pryor being the only Democrats to vote in opposition. Right. So in this case, Republicans are getting in the way of these judicial appointments. The Democrats use the nuclear option on this. So now, indefinitely going forward, no matter who's in power, if you're getting nominees to courts that are not the Supreme Court, it can just fly through. You need less uh, if you votes have that now. majority. Right. Yeah. And then, according to Congressional Research Service, of the 67 times between 1967 and 2012 that the filibuster was used on a judicial nominee, 31 were used during the Obama administration. That's so, stark. So basically, they were really ramping up these filibusters. And so the Democrats got frustrated with it and said, we're, we're pressing the big red button. Yeah. And McConnell, who was the Senate Majority Leader, invoked the nuclear option in 2017 when Senate Democrats announced that they had a sufficient number of votes to sustain a filibuster against the nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to the U.S. Supreme Court. And remember, before in 2013, the carve-out was this wasn't going to apply to U.S. Supreme Court nominees. Now, in 2017, we're going to nuclear option it again. This is another one of those cases where uh, there's a name that I clearly have been mispronouncing in my head for a very what, long which time. Which one? Uh, Neil Gorsuch? What were you saying? In my mind, I call him Neil Grosh. Grosh. I know I'm a nut. I'm a nut. Wow. <laughs> I don't know how you got there. I have no idea how I got there either. I read it quickly and then I just, once I create the name in my mind, it's there indefinitely. Sorry. <laughs> say, say it again. Neil Grosh. That's, That's really how cool. I say it in my head. I mean, it literally says gore such. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm just telling everyone right now, like just expect that no matter, like when I'm saying a name nine times out of 10, unless your name is John Smith, I'm going to butcher it. And I'm never going to correct him. I'm going to let him right, walk just right let, into the fire. Just let me die, like, die on that hill. <laughs> like, no, dude, it's Neil Grosh. Oh, you're, you're so dumb. <laughs> All right. So basically, essentially, McConnell said that the Republicans would change the rules to allow a Supreme Court nominee to be confirmed. So using the nuclear option, extending it to Supreme Court nominees. And it just kind of started the the dominoes. There's this like super ticky tack, like, you know, there's like 70 steps in how it actually was applied. But basically, the Republicans in 2017 used the nuclear option, even though the Democrats had used it in 2013 before. And then in 2019, they went even further and they reduced the limit on debate for those nominations from 30 hours to two hours. Um, so they brought that significantly down. And to enact those changes, they used the nuclear option rather than changing it in its standing rules. If I could just pause, though, I feel like whoever was in, in the majority at that time, it doesn't seem like there's much foresight because when it's your nominees or the other side's nominees, when you have 30 hours to state your case, you can get your case out. But it seems like you're kind of screwing yourself when you have two hours to debate against nominations you don't want. That's dramatic. McConnell said his caucus pursued the change 
due to obstruction by Senate Democrats, of course. He said, quote, the all-encompassing systematic nature of this obstruction is not part of the Senate's important tradition of minority rights. It is a new departure from that tradition. And this break with tradition is hurting the Senate, hamstringing our duly elected president and denying citizens the government they elected, end quote. To which Senator Michael Bennett, a Democrat, said, McConnell seems to have completely forgotten the Obama administration. He led the most famous blockade that's ever happened in the Senate, and that was the blockade of Merrick Garland. It was shameful. So they're going back and forth, and they're like, you did this, and you did that. You're a jerk. You're a cheater. You're changing the rules. And it sounds like a, a you know argument between three-year-olds, but does. basically everybody uses it when it's to their own personal benefit, but then they get mad when the other side uses it. Well, it seems like they use it, and then their justification for doing something so dramatic uh, is, well, you guys did this before, so <laughs> right. now you I'm justified. Right. Oh, man. McConnell responded by criticizing Senate Democrats for using the nuclear option to lower the cloture threshold from 60 votes to 51 votes in 2013. He said, I said at the time I didn't like the way it was done, and I thought maybe the other side would rue the day they did it. Amazingly enough, about a year and a half later, I'm majority leader. Funny how these things change, isn't it? He's saying the quiet part out loud. <laughs> That's a dig. <laughs> He's basically saying, I'm doing this because you did this. And right. he open, openly admits it. But basically, you know, the long and the short, it's an immature pissing contest that is, you know, they're fighting with each other because it's a game with made up rules that they're changing the made up rules. But another loophole concept that got passed was the Congressional Budget Act of 1974. Again, filibustering happening they can't really get anything done they said okay we just need to create this concept that allows us to like when we're doing housekeeping business just like funding the government and moving things forward we are creating this concept of reconciliation and these reconciliation bills are not subject to a filibuster they can be passed by a simple majority seems helpful and it seems like it um is necessary to get stuff passed that you know most americans need to need happen well, and like most things uh, in concept, sure. Yep. Um, but then, of course, they can't help but, you know, leveraging that to do more than what it was initially intended for. And that's how we came up with the Inflation Reduction Act. That is a reconciliation bill because they're like, oh, yeah, this is just about funding different things in the government. Um, this this isn't legislation. We're just, you know, we're just funding the government. Um, but there's so much more in there. Yeah. Right. To the tune of trillions of dollars. So, like, I feel like we can't make a rule and just have people follow it for what it was intended for. They're like manipulating the rules to kind of get their own way. Yes. Yes. All right. So um, we've already got kind of a section of the history that we talked about, but that was more around the procedure and like what a filibuster is. Let's talk about some of the significant times that a filibuster was used. And so from 1917 to 1950, there were 21 motions to invoke cloture to end the debate in the Senate. Only four times was cloture invoked and the filibuster was beaten. So it goes to show the filibuster is pretty powerful. Yeah. So basically, if a filibuster is going to be used, that legislation or that nominee is as good as ruined right. at that point, at least. Yep. One of the first ones we have here in 1935, Louisiana's Senator Huey Pierce Long filibustered the New Deal to force the Senate's Democratic leadership to retain a provision requiring Senate confirmation for the National Recovery Administration's senior employees. The interesting part is he didn't want his political enemies to obtain lucrative NRA jobs, so he spoke for 15 hours and 30 minutes what he did was read and analyze each section of the Constitution, and when that was done, he asked for suggestions and reporters in the press gallery sent him notes to the floor. And then when these ran out, he provided his recipes for fried oysters and pot liquor. 
What's what? a, what's pot liquor? I don't know what it is, man. <laughs> I think it's a food. Um, but like the gall, the audacity to do this kind of thing. Anyway, at four in the morning, he yielded to a call of nature and his proposal was defeated. <laughs> I mean, eventually you have to go, right? So then in 1942, there was a law that was proposed to end the poll tax that was being used by Senate Democrats to disenfranchise low-income, mostly black voters. And the Democrats had filibustered for five days using the disappearing quorum tactic. And basically, the Senate Majority Leader sent a police officer to track down the five people who didn't show up. Amazing. For the one that was left over, the last person that they needed to get in there, he called his hotel room. The guy uh, refused to pick up his phone, made up an excuse to sneak up to his room and like knocked on the door, tricked him into getting him to the Senate building. I don't exactly know how. And then when the the guy realized what was going on, started like having a meltdown and running through the halls. But like they eventually corralled him into the place where he needed to be. um, And ultimately the law was passed. Wild day at work. (laughs) Right. So in 1953, Senator Wayne Morse filibustered the Tidelands oil legislation when he concluded after 22 hours and 26 minutes, one gentleman by himself, he had broken the 18-hour record set in 1908 by his mentor, Robert La Follette, maybe. (laughs) Morse kept that distinction until 1957 when Strom Thurmond logged the current record of 24 hours and 18 minutes. What so what adult named their child Strom? I guess I could get stuck on that too, right? <laughs> Strom Thurman. It's okay. powerful. <laughs> well, anyways, so then there was a, another instance in 1964 where during the vote on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, they were filibustering for 14 hours. This is significant because never in history had the Senate been able to block a filibuster on a civil rights bill. And when the clerk called roll... He was going through all of the different senators for the vote, and when he reached Mr. Engel on that vote, there was no response. The California senator had a brain tumor that had impacted his ability to speak and his use of his arm, and so he slowly lifted his arm and pointed to his eye, thereby signaling his affirmative vote of eye. Beautiful. Um, which is just like I that is like a movie moment. Like you can just picture this guy who like has, you know, he's on his last leg of life essentially and just like slowly pointing towards his eye and saying, you know, let this bill pass. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I've got the movie name, Mr. Engel's Eye. I like that. Mr. Engel's Eye. Mm. We need to get them on it. It would be a good movie moment. I don't know if the rest of it is very boring since <laughs> yeah, that, it's a filibuster. But the most boring moment, fil- movie of all time but with one epic moment. Right. <laughs> nice. So the last example we have here, um, you, before I even say it, it's kind of interesting when that two-track system began in 1972, I feel like all the good stories stopped at that point because the secret filibustering and all the emails mm. sent, they don't make for interesting stories. True. These were better. In June 1968, when Chief Justice Earl Warren planned to retire from the Supreme Court, he informed Lyndon Johnson, who was president at the time, so obviously he could maybe get out and get an appointment in during his term. So Lyndon Johnson obviously wanted to do this, but because of a potential filibuster, the timeline, I guess, didn't allow for this to, to work out. Yeah, so they, 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 didn't have the the, they didn't have the votes to block the filibuster in time. And so ultimately he withdrew it. Yeah. No? And that's that's a big deal just because like the the filibuster impacted a Supreme Court nomination. That's the power of the filibuster. Pirate power. All right. So now let's get right down to the brass tacks. Uh, let's talk about how we feel about the filibuster. I know you kind of had mentioned earlier on that you're not really a huge fan. So I'll, I'll let you start off. 
the more we talked about it, the more we looked into it, it doesn't seem like it's easy to fall on one side or the other. From a position of fairness or thinking that we're uh, in a democracy where the majority should decide on how things go, it feels wrong. And, and when you talk about it in a way where the minority opinion about something can actually halt or stop or destroy what the majority wants, it feels wrong at first glance. At the same time, though, um, an underdog or those without a voice should have a voice. So I think that's where maybe the positive side of it is, is that it gives both sides, it gives the minority side more of an equal footing. Sure. Yeah. And to kind of your point about democracy, this was, you know, based off of that slippery rule change that this really wasn't how it was intended. So like you can't really use that argument necessarily. But in this case, I almost like the... <laughs> the the mistake or like the rule change that wasn't supposed to happen i kind of really like the fact that when you're having a vote the majority party kind of has to take into consideration what the minority party has to say if it's so close like if these people who are elected it's like a 50 50 split or a 51 49 you have to bring them to the table like it forces people to a moderate center where both sides are being given that protection overall. But the repercussions of that, doesn't it make the majority party or whoever's putting legislation forward feel a bit more bitter about their stuff getting sidetracked? So when the tables are reversed, they would have more you know, reason to halt the progress of the other side. I can definitely understand and appreciate kind of this like, Let's just allow things to get done and do it in a democratic way, similar to the way that we pass legislation in general with, you know, that majority vote. So I understand it. I just disagree with it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I kind of complained earlier on when when we got past 1972 and there's the two track system and you can put in a silent filibuster and everything else can move along. I said, well, now, look, now there's there's more filibustering that that can't be good. Um, I, I don't actually, know. I kind of like. So if we're if we're thinking about the two track system, like to me, I think it makes sense because, first of all, like everything grinding to a halt doesn't really make sense. Right? You, you have Absolutely. to be able to get things passed through. And I understand that there is this secondary impact, right, that, you know, there's more filibustering that are that's happening. But to me, I'm fine with that. It's allowing a filibuster to kind of happen across the board with removing that element of like just this bombastic person who has this aggressive personality or grading personality is like now it's kind of an even playing field. Anybody can filibuster and it's giving that protection across the board at all times of saying majority minority party like come to the table sure. on all things as opposed to just a few that you feel like super passionate about. But I wonder if the nuclear option aspect is brought more into the spotlight when the minority party can filibuster so much easier and so right. much more. Right. Like, does that instigate the majority party party to be so that much more frustrated that they're brought to the brink of using the nuclear option, which I think we can both agree is a is not good. Right. Right. So, like, you're saying that the the two-track system makes the nuclear option like way more tempting to the majority party. It's a guess, yeah. but I think no, it could I th be... I think you're right on that. I think that makes sense. But it's almost like, when it, like if I could wave my magic wand and make the perfect world, I would say get rid of the nuclear option, but maintain the two-track system so that that just stays and maintains in place. And the fact that the nuclear option exists almost all but guarantees the fact that at some point the filibuster will go away um 
Sure. You know, might be a year, might be 10 years, might be 100 years, but the fact that it exists, like at some point, it's going to get tossed. And that would just mean, yeah, more unchecked power by the party in power. Exactly. Um, The one thing that I find kind of silly about the filibuster is like the mechanics of how they have to get there. Like, oh, we're going to take this vote, but it's not the vote on the vote. It's the vote to vote or not vote. Um, <laughs> on the you vote. Know, and then you take another vote that's the actual vote, not the vote to vote. Um, so I think that's kind of silly, but I understand like the mechanics of why it has to happen that way. Yes. Yes. Seems like a Monty Python type scene, <laughs> right. actually. Um, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> Thou shalt vote three times. No more, no less. Um, Good stuff. <laughs> and then, you know, the other argument, I see this probably mostly on Twitter or like it, social media platforms, because I feel like people have, they have a lot more heartfelt views on certain things. <laughs> so they, you know, argue that the filibuster is rooted in racism. And it certainly was used for racist purposes, right? We talked about how the it was used to kind of block civil rights movement legislation. But I don't necessarily agree that the filibuster itself is rooted in racism, right? Because like, clearly it was this procedural rule change. And just because a rule is used for nefarious purposes doesn't necessarily mean that the rule itself is nefarious. Similar, like the Supreme Court made some terrible decisions in the past. Does that mean that I think we should abolish the Supreme Court and that the Supreme Court is a nefarious entity? No, you know, we just kind of tweak uh, what we're working on and try and make it work for the greater good. Using your Supreme Court analogy, there's been some great things to come out of the Supreme Court that we all heavily rely on. So it's the mechanism that can be used for good or bad. And then the other thing on that is the reconciliation. I understand the premise of reconciliation. You know, it kind of gets things moving. But same thing, like people just can't seem to abide by the intention of the rule itself. They're like, oh, sure, you're going to have this little exemption that we can use. All right, let me pass a, you know, $9 trillion budget act that clearly is legislative in nature as opposed to just funding the government. So to me, while I am, you know, I'm pro filibuster, I guess I'm anti I'm not anti-reconciliation, though, because like I get the concept. There's I get the concept of wanting it. to be able to move it forward. I just would like wish that people could just kind of stop being arses. Yeah, yeah. If you could stick to what reconciliation was for, right. um, it would benefit us greatly. But you, yeah, like you said, we're taking good things and using them for our own purposes, whoever yeah. the majority party might be. But I think a, a good thing to differentiate is the nuclear option from the filibuster. And that's something I think we could both can unilaterally like agree on. Totally. We are both anti-nuclear option. Either have the filibuster or don't. Stop carving out these weird little slivers of things. Right. Yeah. And it seems everyone but the majority party in power at the time is, uh, feels the same way about the nuclear option. Right. Um, so that goes to show it's probably not for good. Something that I kind of think is important about the filibuster in general is it's just a kind of another way that people are trying to make the Senate operate and look more like the House of Representatives. If you're the Senate has this kind of protection on their side, but the House of Representatives, it's a simple majority vote. If you get rid of this filibuster, you're just taking another step towards the House and the Senate looking, operating and acting the exact same way. Which doesn't have to be a bad thing, but it doesn't have to be the case. Right. So. Right. And I've seen some people even saying this is obviously people that are more extreme on that side, but they're saying like abolish the Senate altogether because we're in a democracy and it should only be like this straight vote, straight direct representation by the people. And like the Senate is this antiquated establishment that should be gotten rid of altogether. When anyone says abolish anything. Yeah. I feel like I have to tune that out because that cannot be the mature response to something. Tweak it, improve it. 
But to throw it out, there has to be like resounding evidence to say something needs to be completely abolished. Right. And and generally, these these institutions have been established in the way that they are because they saw how these things could be manipulated in previous governments in the past and, and made it this way. And I'm not saying that the United States government is perfect, but at the same time, like comparatively speaking towards other governments, uh, I think we have it pretty good. And you um, have you have here, too, um, a bit about the disappearing quorum. So like the filibuster to me is one thing because you're you're forcing people to kind of come together. Um, you're forcing people to have a conversation about a more moderate uh, bi- opinion, bill, legislation, what have you. To me, the disappearing quorum is different. It's like somebody is just straight up shirking their responsibility. They're they're not coming to the table. They're not having that discussion. They're not showing up at all. They're intentionally not voting on it, which to me, that's it's not operating within a framework that uh, brings people to the to the table and has that discussion. So to me, I have a lot less respect for the disappearing quorum than I do for the filibuster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 your job to show up and and vote on these things. So. Yeah, it's shirking your responsibility. Yeah, and I think to me this is also kind of the thing that highlights the the political consistency, right? So, if you if you believe that the filibuster is bad, I think you should always think that the filibuster is bad. When yes, you're in the majority, thank you for saying that. Absolutely. When you're in the majority and when you're in the minority, you should have the same perspective on the filibuster, even keeled, both sides. Um, we see this changing back and forth and you know mitch mcconnell saying i don't like the filibuster i'm not going to use it but then after they use it i'm going to use it in you know like changing opinions make up your mind and like don't operate based on what the change can do for you in the moment have an opinion on it because it has merit or doesn't have merit and in this case i think the filibuster is one of those cases where people have the worst perspectives on it because it's only based off of where they are in in the time and place yes And I'll even take that a step further. So, you know, the consistency aspect. When we were rifling through, there was certain carve-outs for decreasing the amount of votes needed for appointments, except for U.S. Supreme Court appointments. And then a year or two later, that was changed to include Supreme Court appointments. But not legislative (laughs) votes. Exactly. So it just, it further shows the people that there's no real ethical aspect to it. It's just... Whoever's in power, for their purposes, are going to use it how they want. Right. Like, if you think that the filibuster is bad for judicial appointments, you should probably also think that the filibuster is bad based on legislation, because it's the same concept. It's, do you want the minority to have a say in when the majority is deciding something? And if you think that's okay in some cases, but not in others, you're probably using it for selfish purposes. Yep. And because everything's recorded and we're all listening as the years go by, we can see it. <laughs> right, right. It's very obvious. Yeah. And and I can, that's not to say that I don't understand what people are saying when they're saying that this is quote unquote undemocratic. Like I get what they're saying. I understand the concept of that. The use and, of it is undemocratic. And I can appreciate that it might feel unfair. But then when I take the other several steps to kind of think about it, I'm like, if my ultimate goal is to have the vast majority of Americans represented in decision making, the filibuster allows that to happen. It protects the minority. And to me, I feel good about that. If it can be used equally, no matter who's in power. Right. Yes, yes, right. consistently, no matter who's in power. I Absolutely. agree with that, Ken. And like, you know, I wish people could just use rules without trying to manipulate them. And I get that the filibuster like emanated from that in general, but like then they did the two track system and then they manipulated it even more. And that like, 
So I get that it's, you know, kind of shirking the rules that they have in place, but it's, I'll I, die. I'll die on that hill. <laughs> don't die yet. We have more podcasts <laughs> to do. Nice. So we have a few quotes from some people of uh, how they feel about the filibuster. Um, so David Litt of the Atlantic wrote, quote, in fact, in a polarized age, the only guaranteed cure for political dysfunction is majority rule. So he's saying the filibuster has no place in society. Majority rule is the only political cure for dysfunction. And to me, that sounds really dangerous, right? Because that goes against our the whole structure of our country, of a constitutional republic where you're saying there are certain rights and protections that people have. It's just he's saying if the majority thinks it, that's cool. And that's that's how we got into like some of the terrible instances in our history in the first place. Majority rule got us to slavery. So you had a group of people that was in the minority and they were straight up steamrolled because of the fact that they didn't have numbers in order to vote over the other ones. Whereas by having inalienable rights that are bestowed on someone, it might not be the majority rule that's deciding on something, but everybody is given this power to kind of defend themselves. So I think that's just a irresponsible quote. Definitely, definitely irresponsible. Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema on preserving the filibuster in the Senate said, the best thing you could do for your child is to not give them everything they want, right? And that's important to the United States Senate as well. We shouldn't get everything we want in the moment. Um, she's a complex figure, but I, I, I really agree with that. And that was kind of also what we were saying earlier with the nuclear option, that changing the rules, longstanding rules that were in place for most likely a reason can be changed in the moment to get what you want. Um, yeah, that's not well thought out at all. Right, and, so. and like having kids, I totally can like, I can <laughs> I can understand and uh, appreciate that quote a lot more because it's like, yes, if I left my kids to their own devices, they would get anything that they want in that moment immediately. They would eat all of the cake and ice cream that they could. Um, and so she's likening that to the filibuster saying like, maybe we shouldn't always get what we want because maybe it's not good for us. Agreed, man. Absolutely true. But people didn't always hold the same exact views that they always did. Um, there was a whole lot of flip-flopping that happens and continues to happen on uh, the filibuster. Bring so, out the flip-flops. Right? So, for instance, House Republicans, super keen on filibuster reform in 2016. This was demonstrated not only by uh, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, he dropped out of the 2016 election for the GOP nomination for president. He said that eliminating the filibuster is not only the reasonable thing to do, it is the conservative thing to do. And Governor Scott Walker said before his 2016 campaign imploded, Jeb Bush said he'd consider it as well. So the Republican presidential nominees in 2016 abolished the filibuster. And uh, I don't think they were in power at the time, right? Uh, no, no, they were not. Of, that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> in a December 2016 interview with Politico, Democratic leader Harry Reid, Democrat from Nevada, predicted it's just a matter of time before the filibuster is done away with altogether. And Tr I think he said that like ruefully, like he didn't want it to be done away with, but he's like, it's only a matter of time. Based on the way things are going. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Trump had told McConnell that he should go nuclear. <laughs> Meaning change the Senate rules, right? You've clearly practiced that. I've been saying this all day. <laughs> go nuclear. McConnell, go nuclear. Uh, where was I going with that? <laughs> I don't know. You 
<laughs> it really distracted me. So he was saying, change the Senate rules. McConnell wouldn't commit either way, but he did not take the option off the table. Quote, I'm very confident he will be confirmed, McConnell said. And as for now, he said, I would say that it is up to our Democratic friends. When asked if he would modify Senate rules to allow senators to end debate on legislation by a simple majority, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that he would not. In an April 4, 2017 press conference, McConnell said, who would be the biggest beneficiary of that right now? It would be the majority, right? There's not a single senator in the majority who thinks we ought to change the, le- the legislative filibuster. Not one. Which is ironic because he said that in 2017. And what did Senator Mitch McConnell do in 2019? I think he changed the rules for the Supreme Court. Or yeah, was- it was for the Supreme Court nominee. Yeah. How about Um, that? So then May 2017, President Trump tweeted, we either elect more Republican senators in 2018 or change the rules now to 51%. Our country needs a good shutdown. Our country needs a good shutdown, as you would say (laughs) in September. Let's fix this mess. I'm not I'm not as good as the, at the Trump voice. That sounds more like Jim Carrey in uh, in Living Color when he's pretending to be a workout coach. I okay. I can't remember. Yeah, I'm you not very good at the that. voices. Yeah. I can't get the nasally aspect of it yeah. going. Okay. Anyways, in response, McConnell said there is overwhelming majority on a bipartisan basis not interested in changing the way the Senate operates on the legislative calendar, and that such a bold move would fundamentally change the way the Senate has worked for a very long time. We're not going to do that. He did that. But he was cool with doing it for the Supreme Court nominees, so I don't get it. But anyways, Democrat leader Chuck Schumer agreed with McConnell saying, I think the idea using the nuclear option for legislative stuff is pretty much dead. That's good to hear. But recently, he's kind of changed his tune. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So. Al Gore in 2022, quote, we have the minority government. The filibuster should be eliminated. Al Gore in 2005. The GOP wants to end the filibuster to satisfy their lust for one party dominance of all three branches of government. It seems like he kind of changed his mind there. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Wisconsin state Senate candidate Mandela Barnes tweeted, let's be clear, the filibuster has been weaponized by the GOP and it's destroying our democracy. Similarly, uh, Vox correspondent Ian Milheiser tweeted, the incremental centrist bull solution to this problem is to simply abolish the filibuster. The better solution is to abolish the Senate. Um, so, you know, this uh, this writer here is saying what we said before, the extremist view, get rid of the Senate. That's the hot word right now. Abolish, abolish. Abolish, abolish everything. Yeah. All right. So now we've got a quote from uh, Chuck Schumer that we want to listen to. And keep in mind that right now, present day, we didn't have a quote on this earlier, but basically he wants to abolish the filibuster. That's kind of, you know, his platform right now. Let's listen to what he had to say in 2005 when the Republicans were in power. The ideologues in the Senate want to turn what the founding fathers called the cooling saucer of democracy into the rubber stamp of dictatorship. We will not let them. They want, because they can't get their way on every judge, to change the rules in midstream, to wash away 200 years of history. They want to make this country into a banana republic, where if you don't get your way, you change the rules. Are we going to let them? It'll be a doomsday for democracy if we do. So he's pretty clear on that, on what he thinks in 2005. He thinks they're making a banana republic. <laughs> um, so he wants to be able to filibuster at that point. Right. He, he's, he is 
saying the Republicans are terrible people for wanting to change this system of rule. And he's the white knight riding in to stop it. Exactly. He's protecting the 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 established processes and, and institutions that we have in place. Your your passion is admirable, Chuck. Right. <laughs> flip flop, flip flop. So now we're gonna hear from Biden and Obama when they were not in power. But right now the filibuster is something that they do not speak too keenly on. So it's the worst thing in the world, according to them right now. It's obstructive. So let's hear what they had to say a few years ago. The filibusters are not about not about stopping a nominee or a bill. It's about compromise and moderation. That's why the founders put unlimited debate in. What they don't expect is for one party, be it Republican or Democrat, to change the rules in the middle of the game so that they can make all the decisions while the other party is told to sit down and keep quiet. Again, they're very clear on their positions in, in these past clips. So a little bit different from what they're saying right now. It's unfortunate that they have to be recorded and listen back on that. But it doesn't seem to affect those in power because they're still out there with their clout. But it's wild to hear them go back and forth on these issues. Yeah, nobody holds them accountable for their inconsistency with these topics. So flip flop flip. All right, so the next quote that we have is from Mitt Romney, and this is a, a recent quote. So this is when the Republicans are in the minority. Note that in the federal government, empowerment of the minority is established through only one institution, the Senate. The majority decides in the House. The majority decides in the Supreme Court. The president, of course, is a majority of one. Only in the Senate does the minority restrain the power of the majority. For a law to pass in the Senate, it must appeal to senators in both parties. This virtually assures that the bill did not originate from the extreme wing of either one. Consider how different the Senate would be without the filibuster. Whenever one party replaced the other as majority, tax and spending parties would change. Safety net programs would change. National security policy could change. Cultural issues would careen from one extreme to the other, creating uncertainty and unpredictability. Abandoning the principle of minority empowerment would fundamentally change a distinct and essential role of the United States Senate. But today's Democrats, now with the barest of majorities in a 50-50 Senate, conveniently ignore their own impassioned defense of the filibuster when they were in the minority. All right, so I'll, I'll preface this with um, similar to your feelings on Ted Cruz. I probably have similar feelings about Mitt Romney. <laughs> Um, okay. I'm not a huge I, I'm not a huge fan of, of Mitt Romney. What he says or how he says it? I mean um, Ted Cruz just his delivery and his insincereness just makes me want to vomit. I don't I don't know what it is. I think I don't know. I guess I just I feel like it's insincere the things that he's saying. However, that he fools being me, said, he, fools he, me. he clearly um he is clearly giving that uh, speech in defense of the filibuster and that is kind of echoing he kind of echoed a lot of the things that we were saying in particular about it right um so i don't disagree with what he was saying but at the same time to be fair we didn't find anything that uh, we were able to dig up in the past of him flip-flopping on it that does not mean that it doesn't exist so but in a vacuum what he said does resonate and I, right i feel that i've come to a similar conclusion about yeah. it I just feel like, based on my feelings on Mitt, I probably should have dug a little bit further and found something. <laughs> yeah, seriously, you kind of really I, undersold I feel, yourself. There. I feel vindictive. He comes out on top in this podcast. Sure, here. sure. No, he. Uh, I just. I feel <laughs> wrong. I feel wrong saying that Mitt did a great job. In Way to speech. go, Mitt. Oh, anyways, rock on, Romney. All right, and so then the uh, the last one that we have here for this is from Elizabeth Warren. So let's take a listen on this. 
It's time we get rid of the filibuster. Here's what it is, and here's why it stinks. Now, a small minority in the Senate could force a bill to get through two votes, a supermajority vote to end debate, and a simple majority vote to pass the bill. It made no sense. The year after the Senate established Rule 22, an anti-lynching bill was introduced. A small group of senators hell-bent on upholding white supremacy decided to flex the new rule and filibuster the legislation. The law took a hundred years to break a filibuster, and it still isn't law. During the Jim Crow era, Southern senators continued to use the filibuster as a tool to block civil rights legislation, and only civil rights legislation. Right now, H.R. 1 is sitting before the Senate. It expands voting rights, reforms campaign finance laws, and limits partisan gerrymandering. Woohoo! It already passed the House, and it deserves a vote in the Senate. When a minority has this much control over the majority, voters are silenced. We need to get rid of the filibuster to keep our democracy. Oh boy. Oh <laughs> Elizabeth boy. Warren is like the cringiest person, I feel like. I would like my text tone to be her, woohoo, woohoo. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, that one hurt my soul <laughs> listening to that. It's like a robot. Um, <laughs> She's trying to be persuasive. I feel like if you didn't know any of this beforehand, you'd say, wow, this is a terrible thing, the filibuster. Yeah, totally. And at the same time, I feel like anytime she talks to the general public, she speaks to everyone like they're three years old. Like that could have been a video for preschoolers, yeah. um, but it was made for like the general American public to consume. So to me, that kind of shows like what Elizabeth Warren thinks about the general public. And she's been accused of that in general. Yeah. yeah the way she yeah. speaks down. Like to the people. time that she was like, let me crack a beer here. Do you remember <laughs> oh, that? Yeah. Yes, yes. I don't remember what in reference it's, to what, yeah. but it was so fake. <laughs> yeah. So she was kind of pointing to that argument that we had talked about earlier with like the it being used as a, a tool for racism. And, and we're definitely not denying that that happened. Absolutely. The filibuster has been used in the past for bad things. For and, sure. And I can sympathize with the party in power feeling frustrated that what they w want to do can't be easily done. So in that regard, I understand. But she and anyone else in the, those positions should be wise enough to know that when they're not in that power, that they would want this function. Right. And if you think about it from the other perspective, let's say that the majority in power is the one that's trying to enact those policies that suppress and oppress and enact racist policies. That would happen with the majority as well. And I would argue that it's easier for that to happen with the majority because then you just need 51% of people instead of 60% of people to agree on that heinous you know, policy. So like what she's saying, sure, historically it has been used that way, but as a, as a function, as a feature, technically it's harder for people to enact bad policy when you have the filibuster in place. All right, so now we're moving on to the Centrifugal Farce Award, the last one, the biggest, the best, the it's, baddest. It's going to hurt. <laughs> All right, introduce it for us. Um, David Hogg, which I feel bad. I still feel like he's the kid who was on the receiving end of a horrible life yeah. event. And it's true. But anyone that has gone through horrible things or is popular and says something dumb in the future, that's still their problem. Ouch. 
blistering. So I wish it was someone else that said it, but he happened to tweet, quote, the filibuster is killing our republic. It's killing our right to vote. It's killing our children. It's killing our planet. It's killing our progress. It's time we effing abolish it. That's a lot yeah. of killing. That's a lot of death. Yeah, just if there is one way to say this political perspective as far to one side as you can possibly say it, that's how you say it. It seems like uh, the the quotes to retain the filibuster weren't as extreme because, again, it's the status quo. Um, it's the thing that's currently in place. So there weren't a lot of people saying super extreme things about maintaining the filibuster. But out of all the quotes that we sifted through, this is the one that was like as far out as we could possibly find of um, demonizing the filibuster, I guess. Yeah, no nuance and um, as evil as possibly can be and worth abolishing like everything else we don't like. Right. But and and it's it's giving no possibility that even like the other side like might have a, a good point or like that you can understand or sympathize with what the other side is trying to say, like something that's a, a middle ground. Nope, it's killing our republic, killing our planet, killing our children, killing our progress, you know, just doubling down on it over and over and over. And I feel like uh, um, you had mentioned earlier, but a nice analogy or a nice way to think about this is like if or when Trump is in charge again or when he was in charge, you could take this tweet, substitute the word filibuster for Trump. Yep. And right, these right, kinds exactly. of people would be saying Trump is killing our republic, killing our right to vote, killing our children, killing our planet. So we need the filibuster. Right. Right. Exactly. Because that 51 percent, all Trump needs is you know, 51% and he can put in any policy that he wants in place and the filibuster would give them the protection of requiring at least 60 votes. So, you know, in 2016, it'd be the flip side of this, um, of this argument. So David yeah. Hogg hasn't been around for a long time. So, I mean, maybe he's a bit forgiven because he hasn't gone through the ebbs and flows, uh, of, of the years right yet, of switching but, political parties that much but I mean, elizabeth warren should so I mean. but elizabeth warren should know and people right. of her age who have seen this come and right. go they should know yeah so it seems we've got one of these options kill the filibuster keep it or modify it the left is saying we need to abolish it for us to achieve progress the right right now is saying we need to keep it or the minority will be ruled by an iron fist but everyone seems to be singing a different tune when the shoe is on the other foot. In reality, there's merit to both sides, but there's historic precedent and solid rationale to argue that the filibuster can be a good thing, even though it seems doomed to be killed at some point or another. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Feel free to leave us a review wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at RealItInPodcast or email us at TheRealItInPodcast at gmail.com. Tell your family, tell your friends, whatever. We're starting to finally establish a broader social media presence, so feel free to drop by and check it out, and we'll see you in the next episode. So if we talk about things in desserts, so if 51% like chocolate but despise vanilla, 49% like vanilla and don't like chocolate, but 80% are cool with s'mores. It's not their number one choice, but they all like it enough. The filibuster will prevent the 51% from steamrolling the 49% and forcing them to eat vanilla, even though they hate it. And it provides an incentive for them to all negotiate and find a s'more solution. <laughs>